Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, the first order of business is I need to do a correction. We were talking the other day for a long time, long, long time, on this uh, same program about Ursus Arctos, okay, or the brown bear, and... I was uh, talking about all kinds of stuff I don't know the truth about. And a um, Dr. Jarko wrote in to clarify something to me. He was like, I was saying how I, I, I don't know where I got this in my head that uh, Ursus, that, that the old name for grizzlies was Ursus Horribilis, like horrible bear. But this guy called in and, and clarified that, in, in fact, it's that's like an example of trinomial nomenclature where it's ursus arctos horribilis ursus arctos horribilis was and is a name for interior brown bears so like the grizzly bear would be ursus arctos horribilis i thought that they dropped the horribilis because it was like bad pr for the bears but he says that is not correct he said no he had a couple other little gripes with things that i kind of don't really agree with <laughs> Oh, yeah, he clarified something. I also said that, uh, and I use as an example of trinomial nomenclature, would be Ursus Arctos Arctos. He says that's perfectly valu- val- valid, but I should have pointed out that it, that is Ursus Arctos Arctos is the Eurasian grizzly, not found in North America. And he had a third gripe where he said that, and I, this is the one I kind of disagree with him about. I was talking about binomial nomenclature, which is like the Linnaean system where you have, uh, for instance, Ursus arctos, which would be like northern bear. 
he was saying that the second word in that, so if you like homo sapiens, okay, I, I use the second word like it was like genus and species, but he said the second part of the epithet. So in homo sapien, the second part of the epithet refer is just called, that's just the species. It's not fair to say that the second part is the species because the two things make up the thing. So there, Dr. Jarko, if I'm saying your name right. Now, second thing, uh, do you guys go with Sika or Sika? Because I hear it both ways. Sika. You like Sika. I've been corrected. But, I, I used to, when I first came here a year ago, I called him Sika. And I was corrected by some of the locals. Well, Sika. I think the locals are but the I only... But th- I think they're, I don't know if they're it right It causes <laughs> a lot of confusion with the Sitka, the Sitka black-tailed deer. Yep. But I have a hunting video that Yana shared with me called by, by an outfit called Chesapeake Pursuits or something like that. And those are the first boys I'd ever heard say Sika, not Sika. Mm-hmm. You got an opinion about it? The locals, I think, say Sika. I say Sika. You do, and you're the damn biologist. So I'm probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask the locals. I think, I think so, because I say Sika, too. You do? All right, yeah. I, I want, let's do intros as though dealing, <laughs> as though dealing uh, poker. Um, there's me, and then... There's Giannis. Giannis. Marsha. Do, like, no, do a big, long intro. Oh, big, long intro? Yeah. All right. I just don't have to just because... The, yeah, you know, he's, you know... Gotcha. No one cares <laughs> We anymore. know who you are. No one cares anymore. <laughs> I'm Marsha Pradings, and I'm the project leader for the Chesapeake Marshlands National Wildlife Refuge Complex, which includes Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, Eastern Neck, Martin, and Susquehanna. We're a significant percentage of all. Sika. Are we going to go Sika right now? I'm going Sika the whole show. I'm with Sika. And you can stick with Sika. I'm going like to stick with Sika. Yeah. Cool. All right. We're yeah. talking about the same thing. Exactly. We're not talking about Sika Blacktails. Yes. All right. You Sorry. know what? I'm going with Sika. I can't decide. All right. Which is where a significant percentage of all. I still can't decide if I want to go with Sika or Sika. What do you recommend? Sika. Really? I'm going sick. I'm going sick. I'm, I, I'm, I live here, so I'm going to go with the locals. I'm running sick. I'm running sick of the whole program. Yanni, you run Sika just out of fairness. <laughs> just this will be like a bi- right. it's like bi- this will keep it bipartisan. <laughs> so that refuge complex is where a significant percentage of all the Sika deer living in the United States of America live. That's correct. You, you probably can- can't venture a guess though as to what percentage. Almost one hundred percent. Between the refuge and the state Fishing land, um, that represents a pretty big percentage right? of, of the it's public of the public land. There are there are a lot of deer on private land too, um, but yeah, the refuge system definitely holds a huge part of the population of the of the total population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to add about your? You want to clarify what um, what, what what falls under your uh, jurisdiction there uh, under your job title? Sure. Well, um, I'm the refuge manager here at Blackwater, so I oversee basically everything that goes on on the refuge, including our biological program, our visitor services, our maintenance, everything from taking care of the almost 200,000 visitors that come visit Blackwater each year to taking care of all of our roads and uh, you name it. So Does we that ma- 200,000 count hunters? Because you run the oh, hunt, yes. you, so you oversee the hunting program yes. too. Yes, correct. And yep. that, and that what, do you have a number on hunters that, that visit your? Yeah, location? we have about eighteen hundred individual hunters that apply for permits each year, and okay. they apply for over sixty five hundred permits. 
different types of hunts. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's more permits than hunters. Yeah, that's correct. If you look at how our hunting season runs, you can apply for quota hunts, non-quota hunts, different days and so forth. So that's why. And so one hunter might have multiple permits that's that they correct. draw. Got right. It. So that's why I distinguish we've got about 1,800 deer hunters, I should say, because we also have waterfowl hunting and turkey hunting on the refuge too, to a lesser degree. So even though you run a permit, we'll get into more, of the, we'll get into this in greater detail, but even though you run a permit system there, you don't turn away hunters. Like anyone that wants to hunt can get a crack at it. Well, we do have, it depends. We have quota hunts where we only allow so many hunters per unit. So they'll be limited in that respect. And our muzzle loader hunts and our shotgun hunts get pretty full. But, but archery stays. Archery's open. Yep. And that goes from September 8th, the state opener, until it ends at the end of January. All right. So archery's been unlimited. All right. So jumping along in our intro, Steve. Uh, Steve Kendrat. I'm a uh, wildlife biologist with the USDA. But today I'm joining you just as a uh, avid Sika hunter. You're running Sika too now. I'll sorry. run Sika today, yeah. Really? But if we're going to do that, we also have to talk about... <laughs> he has a house in Dorchester County, so... Yeah, he's, he's yeah you're, a home, you're like a resident here. You're local. Yeah, sort of. I don't think the locals ever consider anybody that ain't born here no. a resident. But, uh, but yeah, I've been here for since 2002. I've been pursuing the elusive Sika deer or Sika deer. I bounce back and forth. <laughs> we're going to start talking about same, turtles. In the same sense? We're going to have to say turkles and bull minners. Oh, okay. That's oh. what the locals talk about, minnows and turtles. So, I see. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lexicon of interesting names for critters down this way. I'm with you. Um, and then finally, Brian. I am deer biologist for Maryland Department of Natural Resources. So, so you're the head chief. Ma- you probably don't like these words. You're the main deer biologist. Sure, but Maryland's a small state, so yeah. There's, there's, we have, there's two, two deer biologists that work for the state. Myself and and uh, uh, George Temko does urban suburban. We have a lot of urban suburban areas in the state, so we have a biologist dedicated to trying to deal with white-tailed deer in in those areas. So, but I mainly set, I mainly, you know, um, analyze harvest data, oversee collection of harvest data, biological data, any of the research we're doing. Uh, you know, we've done numerous studies on on sika deer down here, uh, and uh, so yeah. So, are you? Um, how long have you been doing that for? Um, I have been with DNR for sixteen years, and I was involved with deer research um, before that through Penn State University. Um, so I've been I've been dealing with deer for. 20 plus years what got you wanting to do uh was it deer hunting that got you wanted to become yeah. a deer biologist yeah I, I grew up and i'm a pennsylvania kid so i grew up deer hunting and just, and, then, and then um is it true that you kind of got away from it a little bit now that that's all you work on um yeah i got away from i escaped from deer for a brief period when i was with fish and wildlife service and then i got sucked back in i did actually did my master's down here on on sika and whitetail and, and then i started with a state short, shortly after so do you still hunt deer yeah oh you do yeah, oh yeah definitely so not as much as i used to um because i'm kind of working when everybody else is hunting but yeah now so. do you here's a quick question for you then we'll get into the main matter do you ever find are you ever like man uh, i wouldn't have got that buck if it weren't for all my schooling no or does it totally different like being a deer biologist and being a dude shooting deer is like Two different things. Two different toolkits. Two different things. Yeah. yeah. Two different things. Yeah. When you you know when you work with a deer for forty hours a week, it you know it's, it changes things a little bit. So I mean, definitely the knowledge helps. 
no question the knowledge you know that you pick up helps um yeah so so you feel that uh like you feel that being a your experiences as a I guess because, yeah, you must look at so much like deer sign all the time and just like, well, like learn to recognize areas that hold a lot of animals and not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have that insight, um, but then also just the access to data. I mean, just the data Which end is of It's probably things. available, though. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. you just know how to mine it. Yeah. Well, I don't, I mean, you could, yeah, you could mine it and use it. So, but yeah. Um, all right, now I want to go back to the beginning. Who, who? Okay, why are the deer here? Like, like, just to clarify, this deer species, Sika Sika deer, aren't. If you've never heard of them, it's because they're not even they're not a native they're not native wildlife. Right, they're non-natives. And how well do you know the? I know that it's not totally knowable because there's some mystery about their 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 where they came from and how they got here. But can you sketch that out? Like, why is it that? a little corner of Maryland has a huntable population of a deer that no one's ever heard of before? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, they the, the subspecies we have, so you were talking about deer brown bears and nomenclature, so the subspecies we have is service nippon yakushime. Um, so they're, a, and that's a Japanese subspecies. Yakushime. Yakushime, and they came from Yakushima Island okay. off the southern tip of Japan. Uh, back in the early 1800s, they were apparently imported from Yakushima Island into Ireland. Not sure what the connection there was or anything, but so the the deer we have here didn't come straight from Japan. They 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 were imported into Ireland from Ireland. They were gifted to various individuals, probably pretty important people. Um, yeah, and they ended up in Britain, et cetera. And then at some point in the late eighteen hundreds, or, or actually early nineteen hundreds. Um, apparently there were half dozen maybe um, that were gifted to an individual here in Cambridge, Maryland. Um, so Clement Theodore Henry, Roosevelt has nothing to do with this story? Not this story, no. So not, I didn't give him some of these or something like that? Not Theodore Roosevelt. No, he's not involved in this story that I'm aware of. So right. Clement Henry was the gentleman's name. I feel like Yanni yeah. told so, me that. Did you tell me that? I might have. That dude, I feel like every every non-native spe- uh, story from back then is, is like, yeah, someone gave Teddy six yeah, of these, yeah, or yeah. Teddy took six elk and shipped them to New Zealand. Right, you know? right. No, not not in this story that I'm aware of. So, and, and who was the guy again? Um, Clement Henry was the gentleman here in Cambridge that had him. And was he thinking like, was he like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these deer and I'm going to cut them loose out in the marsh? No, he had them in captivity. And I, I don't think the story is real clear whether as he got too many in captivity, he would release them or if he just all at once said, hey, I'm getting rid of my deer and I'm going to stick them out here on James Island, which is the mouth of the little chop tank. Um, I see. So he, caught, he thought maybe the, they'd stay on the island. Yeah, I think that was probably the, the thought, you know, put them out on the island. Um, of course, they didn't, you know, over the, well, the last hundred years, basically, there's been a slow expansion across southern Dorchester. And is it true that he maybe cut loose as two as, as few as two? So, well, he not, not it, it could have went further back than that, but yeah, if you I so we had the Smithsonian Institute look at some genetics work and this was back 15 years ago. Um but their genetics work and then even some more recent genetics work from University of Delaware um shows that there is basically no variation in these animals. 
And so, yeah, they probably, our population probably started from two individuals, and those individuals may even have been siblings, is the way they have told, explained it. Right, to me. really? Yeah. So, but no, uh, these animals are doing great. So, like a tremendous bottleneck, but then they don't have a problem with nothing. No. If you, uh, over the years, different, there's been different studies. They've looked at parasite loads and just, you know, general health. And actually, they are cleaner and healthier than our native white-tailed deer. Does that original island still have some? Um, no, that island at that time was no the the, the island. Oh, Yakushima. Yeah, actually, they they still do have that subspecies. But the interesting thing is, we probably have more. I'm sure we do. We have more here than what they have over there. Has anyone ever so. taken one from that island in Japan and one from here and just stood them next to each other to see if there's some visible? Because like when you just start a population with a small amount, you could have some. Yeah, you, you would could have think. some freaks, right? You, like would you could think. have some unusual animals, yeah. and then have and create sort yeah. of like a. If you look at pictures on the internet, they're identical. Yeah, you would think if you looked at one for a picture of one from Yakushima Island, you'd think you were looking at a Dorchester County sicka. So when they first when they first dropped them in, were people trying to regulate them? No, you could no. just kill them if you saw them. Or, Early on, yeah, early on there weren't seasons and bag limits for them, and they weren't very popular, to be honest with you, you know, for as far as a hunted, hunted species go. Um, regulations really started in the, probably in the 80s, I guess, was when, was when uh, we started, really got aggressive, you know, started recognizing, hey, they may be an issue, they could be a problem. Um, and they started to be regulated in that manner to try to, not not to get rid of them. You know, we never, they kind of found a niche down here. They're not like an invasive species like Nutria. Um, so we've never approached it that we, with the philosophy that we were going to eradicate them like Nutria um, because they have kind of found a niche and they're, they're popular. Um, but at the same time, we don't want a whole Delmarva Peninsula full of sickadier either so you do not want that no no we want to try to keep them here in dorchester and but they've they've expanded they, they're like expanding now slowly yeah they have expanded uh you know they're in delaware now um we've had delaware has had a couple what's their take on them? harvested uh they would prefer to keep them out yeah. so is it is it is there a line around the known like steve you were saying this if you look at what do you call the peninsula? Where, I know we're on the Delmarva Peninsula. Explain that just for people to, to, to understand. Well, that's that big chunk of land between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean, <clears throat> comprised of all of the state of Delaware, the portion of Maryland that's on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, and then the Virginia portion. So Delmarva yeah. is uh, how the peninsula gets And what's name. the peninsula that has all the deer? If you look at them, does that have a name as a peninsula, or is that just Dorchester County? Yeah, Dorchester County is, is uh, sits between the Choptank and the Nanticoke River, so it, it sort of forms a peninsula, I guess, but it's not recognized as one. Yeah, and if you're looking at a map and you find, if, if you go to, to Maryland and then you find Dorchester County, you'll see there's a highway sort of at, that, that county sort of sits on a peninsula, and there's a highway that kind of cuts the, 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 the base of the peninsula diagonally, 50, Highway 50, right? And most of these deer live south and west of of that highway is that correct correct yeah that's correct and it's about how many well our modeling would put it somewhere between 10 and fifteen thousand. that's probably minimum um we harvest three thousand a year so you know i mean if you look at a percentage if you're harvesting 25 percent of your animals or so that would put you in that ballpark somewhere between 10 and 
10 and 15,000 probably. And is there like a, is, has anyone gone and drawn a band? Like if you say that they're welcome here because they're not, they're occupying one, they're very popular with hunters and they're occupying uh, a landscape where they're not really coming into direct contact with, they use the area differently than whitetails. Right. They like to hang out in places that whitetails don't like to hang out. Right. But has anyone ever drawn a line and said, like, we will have zero tolerance for these deer across this line? No. No, we don't approach it from that, from that, you know, to that black and white of a degree. It's just, you know, like I said, we, we would like to keep them in, in southern Dorchester. You know, they're in, they're in Wicomico. They're in Somerset, a few of them in Somerset. Um, generally they're expanding up our rivers you know then whether it's the the chop tank or the nanticoke the marshy hope off the nanticoke um that's how like they're finding their way into caroline in some of these areas um so you know we'll just tweak seasons and bag limits to try to to try to keep that population here you know contained in dorchester as much as we can but but no there's never been really a hard line drawn i mean and do you feel like you guys can uh can you like open and close the valve pretty reliably by by tweaking hunting seasons no we can't um you know we can do our best um but we don't have enough hunters and and a lot of the locals down here would disagree with that uh but in all honesty we don't have enough hunters and enough hunting pressure to really regulate this species or or whitetails for that matter um our hunters are saturated uh, so you know, I mean, what do you mean your hunters are saturated? As far as seasons at bag limits, I mean we're very, oh, we're very, good li- right now. We're, we're very liberal. Yeah, they have, we have it very. We're in the good old days of deer hunting. You know, when you can hunt from September to the end of January, um, and we have if you're archery hunting whitetails down here, you can we have, there's no limit. You can antlerless. You can harvest as many antlerless whitetails with archery equipment as you want in a in a year. So you know, our average hunter takes. Well, I think it's I think it's just two point zero deer now. It was one point nine deer for a lot of years, but our average hunter takes two point zero deer a year because that's what they can use and that's you know, they're not gonna waste deer and, and, and expend more effort. So, you know, and our hunter numbers are fairly stable. They've been stable over the last, you know, ten years or so, but um but we have half as many hunters as what we had when we peaked back in the seventies. Um, and that's not just a Maryland phenomena, you know, I mean, yeah. if you, you look in the East, not so bad in the Midwest or the West, but in the East, I mean, hunter numbers are really seriously declining. Um, so as a deer manager, it kind of concerns you. So, so Homer, there's how many, like, okay, if you've, if you have half, like half the participation you had in the seventies, yeah. a generation ago, yeah. how many, what, what's the, do you know, like how many, how many more or less deer do you have now than the seventies? Oh my Health. gosh, we have ten times as many deer. As so there's way more in. deer per person. Yeah. So what were they doing back then? Well, you know, a lot of them weren't deer hunters back then. I should clar- I, sh- I should clarify that. You know, I mean, they, I mean that when I'm saying when I'm saying half as many hunters, that's all hunters. So that's small game. I see. That's yeah. waterfowl. That's deer, etc. Because and we didn't have as many deer hunters back then because there weren't as many deer, obviously. Um, so you know we may have we probably have more deer hunters now than what we had in the 70s um but it's just because of that shift from small game you know we don't have pheasants anymore yeah you probably don't know that history that's that's for another talk sell a ton of pheasants too yeah you know well back in back in the 60s 70s 
pheasants were really popular, you know, small game species, and they still are in the mid, you know, in the Midwest. Um, but a lot of our hunters, when 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 pheasants went away, they shift. Some of them shifted to deer. Some of them probably stopped hunting or just kept hunting waterfowl. Um, so you know, we total numbers we don't have near the the hunter effort that we that we used to have. Um, and 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 deer hunting days actual number of deer hunting days peaked in the 90s actually um at about 100 and i think we had probably 175,000 days of deer deer hunting effort um and now we have i think my last estimate was about 80,000 so again about about half half the, as many half, like hunter days half, half as many hunter days going towards deer but they're killing probably twice as many deer for that half yeah. effort. Yeah. So yeah. are there more Sitka deer now than at any time in Sitka deer history? Our models would say, yeah. So the last, now it bounces around, but, but just, and just say the last five years. Yes. There's more over the last five years. There's, there's more Sitka deer, Sitka deer than, than any time in history. The population is increasing. Yeah. I'm going back to Sika. Yeah. Population. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, there are, is the consensus that they're harder, that it's harder to hunt them? Because here's the thing I was reading in your report. Harder to hunt them than what? Harder than hunting whitetails. Because they live so much longer than whitetails, right? They do. Which leads you to believe that it's like a, one of them has a, I don't, that might not mean they're harder to hunt. It's just there's like less chance that they're going to die from something. Yeah. Like 10 year olds so. are common, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I don't know if I'd say common. But we've had, I, we've probably had a half a dozen that I know are over 20 um, that I've had my hands on that were tagged back in like the late 80s or early 90s. So you know that you're not going by tooth analysis, but you're going no, by we like have, someone knows the year they hung a tag on that thing. Yeah, so it was already yeah, alive when it got tagged. Yeah, or, and, and some of those were by tooth analysis. But, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, we've had, we've had them over 20. Again, they're not falling out of trees, but, but yeah, it's not uncommon. They're definitely longer lived than whitetails. Do you think they're longer lived than whitetails because you probably can't even, you probably can't know this absolutely are they longer lived than whitetails just because they're just they live longer just or is it because of predation is different on them the other ones can chime in but I would say predation's different as in uh, as in their their natural habits just make them a little harder to hunt they're a little more nocturnal the habitat they're in is is harder to hunt you know you always hear all oh, they're smarter than whitetails. I don't think they're smarter than whitetails. Um, no, they just live in. They in live fact, in twelve foot tall. Exactly. They live in twelve foot tall. Right. Their security cover is right. just provides them an yeah. opportunity to escape hunting pressure, and they'll turn nocturnal like that. Um, yeah, they use they use the ground like how like a cottontail uses a briar patch. Yeah, yeah, and uh, a lot of people in Maryland use bait as well, and I I believe that bait tends to favor nocturnal behaviors as well so definitely despite the fact that you know i think it enhances their hunting uh success i actually think it it contributes to less success it concentrates the deer they don't have to move as much they're not exposed to hunters as they move across the landscape as they would if they had to forage for natural foods so i think it it helps to sort of keep them small home ranges and that uh you know helps to minimize the pressure on an individual deer so you do get some that that live a lot longer 
What I got a question. Marsh is yeah. baiting allowed on the refuge? No. Baiting is not allowed. Oh. Yep. Any of the refuges? None. And, and and no public land either. Oh, yeah, that's correct. No baiting on public land. No, baiting's private land only. Um, but it's really heavily used on private land, right? Unfortunately, it is. And we're like a, it's like a patchwork quilt of land ownership. So you've got Blackwater. Right. It's a lot of contiguous land. We've got about almost 30,000 acres. But you've got these private landowners, a lot of Sika clubs in particular, pockmarking the whole refuge as well. And cranking out corn. Mm-hmm. Yep, so it certainly impacts everything. So how, how is it, like, on the, from the refuge side of things, how is it determined by a National Wildlife Refuge mm-hmm. to allow or not allow bait? I mean, is that something that would just, is that something that would, a decision that would be made in D.C. that would just apply to all refuges? Or is that an individual decision that a refuge can make for itself? Well, that's a great question. Everything that we do as a National Wildlife as a national wildlife refuge, all depends on is it going to harm uh, or or improve wildlife conservation. So okay. that's the first question we have. And we allow what we call the big six, which are six priority uses, hunting, fishing, wildlife photography, wildlife observation, environmental education, and interpretation. These things are actually in a law called the National Wildlife Refuge Improvement Act of uh, 1997 that says we're here for wildlife that's the purpose. That's why we're dedicated and we're on the ground. And each refuge will have a little bit different purpose. So, for instance, Blackwater is, was formed in 1933 for waterfowl primarily. Okay. So that's our primary reason why we're here. And that was but, kind of in response to the great decimation of waterfowl, right? Like when, when the refuge system started to spring up, it was this part of a national effort to recover waterfowl. Yeah, and market, uh, the, the millinery trade was going on as well. So market hunting in general for waterfowl, for other types of birds. Can, for, can you for explain the, hat the trade. millinery trade? Yeah, the millinery trade back in the early 1900s where people would kill egrets and even hummingbirds and so forth to put them in their hats, literally. Yeah, we were talking about Roosevelt either. If you read... Back to Roosevelt, yeah. You, know, <laughs> you read his earlier writings... I mean, he just rails against that industry. Yes. and Because you used to be able to go out. I mean, people would just go out and hunt any bird. Yeah. You just go out and shoot shorebirds, herons, anything you could get your hands on right. to sell feathers. Right. Exactly. It's kind of like people are so familiar with that story about shooting buffalo for hides, right? Shooting passenger pigeons for meat. But people don't realize the, the decimation of non-game birds and also... Yep, that was like happening waterfowl at the same time. for market hunting for me, but also just the decimation of shorebirds. Yes. For guys for tricking out people's hats. Yep, they'd have these egret plumage in their hats, all sorts of really fancy hats. And those are pretty good money. Yeah, yeah. You read about guys making like small fortunes on it. Yeah, and, and Teddy, the very first refuge that was ever formed was in 1903 by... Teddy Roosevelt, by executive order, was Pelican Island off of Florida. That's right. I was reading about that. Yeah, because yeah. people would just be, they were just decimating the egrets and the pelicans and other types of anything out there for feathers in particular. Yeah, I tried to look down on those guys that were doing that too much because I would have been, if I, if I was alive at that time, I would have been totally involved in that business. <laughs> Not a doubt in my mind, because I don't know that they were really aware. I think people have a hard time conceptualizing like uh, finiteness. Yeah. Right? So it's always the visionaries, right? Like right. This, the guy that was complaining then would be the same guy that's complaining about something now and people are brushing him off. Is that, we're not like done making mistakes. No, not at all. You know, we all act like, oh, you know, it's so silly. Like my dad always liked to joke that um, they would put cigarettes in his sea rations during World War II. So like every meal you got had three cigarettes in it. And then we laugh about it now. 
But right now we're making, right now we're doing something as equally stupid that our children will laugh about that we didn't realize how stupid it was. Like we're not, you know, right? We never. We're, there's an inexhaustible supply of mistakes people make, and then later get hindsight. So at the time, I think Roosevelt was like criticized for how much he griped about it. Yeah, putting an end to the good times. Yep. yep. We got a earful yesterday about a guy. Um, we got a earful yesterday by a guy who's uh, uh, sounds like very upset about any form of bag limits or regulations, ruining people's livelihoods. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system, made in the USA, gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel 
So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. So, yeah. Yeah. So everything we do on the refuge, we look at, is it going to be compatible with wildlife conservation? Is it going to hurt biodiversity? Is it going to hurt the purposes of the refuge in particular? And when you look at baiting, there's a lot of impacts that come from baiting. Besides the fact you're like all the things we, we just talked about, you're impacting those species you're also going to be what do people do to get their corn out there they take quads uh they uh, all sorts of uh yeah they end up ruining the ground and and it's you know it's it's a big impact on the yeah from a state perspective i mean too i mean just it's it's you got the biological issue of baiting and you know and the disease issues that go along with that but then on public land you got that whole social issue i mean somebody puts bait out and, mm-hmm. and then the next hunter gets there <laughs> before the guy that put the bait out and sets up over oh you I can mean, imagine yeah the, i mean you can imagine imagine the, how that would go over yeah well, uh, when i was growing up though you were allowed it's not compatible yeah, with it's not a good idea. yeah when i was growing up um yeah. it was funny because you could at the time it was Bait was wide open. Like when I grew up yeah. in Michigan for deer, mm. right? There was yeah. later they started putting later because of the disease issues and the other right. things they started yeah. putting limits on time mm-hmm. when you put it out there. But we used to go down and you could buy this. I'm not joking. We go to Grant, Michigan, and you could fill a pickup truck mm-hmm. up with reject carrots, misshapen mm-hmm. carrots mm-hmm. with like that look like weird anatomical features. You name it, like b- carrots that were not like when you go buy a bag of carrots. And they're all just like these beautiful straight carrots. That's, that's like one in three. Right. Yeah. The rest go for juice and pulp and yeah. animal fodder. But you could you could fill a truck for five bucks. Yeah. And then you'd go dump it out in the woods. And we even griped about it. But it was like we griped about it because we were aware that it really changed the way deer act. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pushing them toward being nocturnal, changing mm-hmm. their travel patterns. But it was like if you can't beat them, join them. And that's the philosophy yeah. in Maryland today. So we would be like, yeah, it sucks that you can bait. Let's go put the bait out. Right. right. <laughs> because yeah, we, if I had to do childhood all over again, I would take a different approach and I would just yeah. not do it. Because I feel like you're not, um, I would not do it out of some moral thing. I just feel like I would have learned so much more about animals had you looked at, had, had you been able to go look at like, well, where are they naturally? Right. Instead of like, where can I make them go? It's just a much more interesting lesson. Like, you can learn that, like, yes, I learned the really interesting thing that deer love carrots. Or you could have learned, like, what are deer doing when right. they're not eating on the carrots that you stuck out in the woods? Right. I call it scouting in a bag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Replaces well, woodsmanship in my mind. But Yeah. Well, yeah. And, yeah. And this is coming from a guy that engaged, like, I'm not, like I said, I can hardly can condemn it because it was something I was heavily yeah. engaged in from the time I was. Well, when and it, you legally bow hunt at twelve. Well, I was running bait from the time I was twelve to the time I was eighteen. Yeah, and I mean, and it does have its it does have its usefulness. I mean, you know, like I said, we struggle with urban and suburban deer issues all the time, and there's cases where it does give you access to deer that you otherwise may not. You know, if you you have a refuge of deer, not not national wild refuge, but just an actual you know a natural refuge where you can't get to deer to hunt them. You know, you might be able to bait and pull some of those deer over to an area where you can hunt. Yeah. So, so it does have some usefulness. But 
But, you know, I wish our hunters, like you said, I mean, we need to get back to some more woodsmanship. This year is a great example. It's a really good acorn year in Maryland Mm -hmm. this year. There's acorns everywhere. Deer are going to be on acorns. They're not going to go to corn. Our hunters are going to continue to sit on corn, not see any deer because the deer are at the nearest white oak or, you know, a red oak or black oak or whatever. So success is going to go down. You think so? Um, yeah, no doubt. I mean, any state in the Appalachian can show you data that when we have a good mast year, deer kill goes down. And that, that's why, because those deer are on acorns. And, you know, they're not, they don't have to move as much for food. Some so dude sitting over corn is great. Well, or, or even the states that don't, ha- that don't allow baiting still show that drop. Oh, in, I see. I see. They, even those states show that drop in, in the harvest. Because they're, like they're, they're just more dispersed. The, yeah. hun- the, yeah. the hunters are not adapting, or is that it, that the, the, the deer are actually harder to hunt? Well, they're, they're harder to hunt in a way because, yeah, they are more scattered and more, you know, you can't pattern them as well. Um, but you just have, you know, I think we have a generation of hunters that, that don't think about natural behavior and natural food sources and you know and where to spend your time trying to trying to get to those those animals you know i think there's a lot of biological evidence out there that says we shouldn't be you know that there's a lot of reasons not to bait i mean chronic wasting disease is a big one i mean we have chronic wasting disease in the region you know in, in maryland um so no i think there's plenty of biological reasons that being said like i said there are areas where baiting is useful and we have always been a baiting state like Michigan. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to go away. You don't think uh, so? No. No, it's not. I gonna, think in 50 years it will. Well, maybe in 50 years it might. We won't, have, we, won't, we won't have any hunters in 50, <laughs> in 50 years. We've got bigger problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's going to be. Uh, yeah, so. There's going to be. There'll be people crank, cranking away at it. Uh, I hope. Yeah. I hope. So. What were you going to say, Steve? It'd be tough to enforce because it's, you know, yeah. on private land. And how many game wardens would you need to patrol all the private land that we have here and yeah but on unenforceable stuff you want you just wind up getting a lot of you know you i mean sure you're gonna have you're gonna have some number of people who aren't gonna follow the rules but a lot of people just follow the rules because of the rule yeah that's true i don't think it's always like a like because you got a club hanging over your head yeah i agree mm-hmm. you know I, when it comes we to can't compliance. and we've always had that philosophy you know you can't you can't you can't set regs for the for the dishonest guy or gal because they're going to find a way to, around the system to break right. the law regardless. So, you know, I mean, the vast majority of our hunters will, you know, they'll obey whatever we put out there. Yeah, like this morning so, walking out, we could have shot a deer in the dark with flashlights. Yeah. <laughs> Once we got in the swamp. But it wasn't like, you know, you're not thinking to yourself like, how will they, they'll never catch us. Right. Because <laughs> right. we're bow hunting, you know. Well, even, yeah, but, you know, just personal ethics, a lot of us won't shoot a deer in a certain circumstance just because... It doesn't match what we think is either fair chase or an ethical harvest or, yeah. you know, what you came here for, you know. Yeah, it'd be easy to walk two steps down from the parking lot and have a deer pop up and shoot it. But that's not kind of why I'm out there, you know. I want to have to work for it and learn from it. You want it to happen in a way that you want it to happen in a way yeah. that you laid out. Yeah. yeah. You know, an interesting thing that Steve's friend we're going to get back to what we're talking about. Bear with me. <laughs> but your friend had an interesting observation. Uh, Steve's friend, Matt, was saying that his uh, wife has some, like she likes to eat only wild meat, but she, he was joking that there's like a rule that she prefers it if it hadn't looked at him. 
because <laughs> <laughs> that it was unaware of his presence you know talking about like yeah. having like a, a strict code of how you want things to play out there's like this idea but when he said that it resonated with me because i always like when i'm telling a hunting story i always like to point out as do many other hunters i'm like and it never knew i was there which you think is sort of like a, a positive right when you're hunting you're like it's a positive if you i feel like if you get an animal that didn't know you were present because it 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 suggests some level of like sneakiness right or some level of that you were in its space that it's being unaware of your space but that puts together this other idea that it's like um there was never a uh relationship between you and the animal where you'd lock eyes mm-hmm. So it might be like how I, that might be kind of partially what I feel when I feel that it's so important or so positive to get an animal that didn't know you were there is because we never established a rapport. (laughs) I had an experience once. I had perfect stalking conditions, saw a doe bed down and some goldenrod, and I managed to stalk within 10 yards of that deer, and she never knew I was there. I had to wait and wait and wait for her to stand up and offer me a shot, and this whole time I could watch her chewing her cud and just completely oblivious to my presence. And when the moment came and she stood up, I pulled back and I flubbed probably one of the easiest shots right over <laughs> her back. And to this day, I think it was in my head, I just, I couldn't kill that deer after that, having that experience with it, you know? It'd become like your pet. Yeah. I've had that happen staring through binoculars where you watch a buck bed down at nine o'clock in the morning and then you get set up for the shot and you wait, it's 3 p.m. until the buck finally stands up and you've watched it change position in its bed, you know, groom itself, chew its cud, fall over, you know, watch his antlers hit the while he's sleeping get back up you know watch all that and then by the time they're like shooting times you know it's coming you're kind of like Ugh, maybe he'll get away you know <laughs> now that yeah. never happens when i'm on the trigger but if i'm like looking for someone else i'm kind of like yeah maybe he'll get away especially <laughs> they do something cute <laughs> like turn around and kind of like nibble or groom yeah man, uh. <laughs> no i don't have that so uh back to the refuge do do so hunters that come out to hunt like on the refuge, is it primarily that's like people hunting sick a deer? Yes, for Not, big game. Yeah, that, and, and that's there, the big game species out yeah, there. Yeah, there's whitetail too, but like last year we did a, what three hundred and fifty. We harvested three hundred and fifty sicka and only seventy seven whitetail. So and there it, are some whitetails out there. And too. do people complain about? Do people complain about the the lack of baiting? I haven't heard that yet. I think because it's been that way for a long time, it's just accepted. It's just accepted that that's the way it goes. Yeah, that it's not, that that's just not feasible on public lands for all the reasons that we talked about. And it gives you a different type of hunting experience too. If you want to go out there and look for sign and, and, and look for wallows and try and find a good trail, try and figure out where are they coming from the marsh to the woods at what time. You know, it's a great experience that you won't get elsewhere. Have you ever like figured out, um, success like have you guys looked at have either of you any kind of mm-hmm. idea of success rates for the refuge like 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 deer per hunter hour or any deer per no. hunter day or anything like that no we haven't done that we haven't done that yet but you killed how tell me how many you killed like last year or not how many you 300, killed, but, yeah me but no. Oh, 350 Sika and 77 Whitetail. And, and how many individual, do you have a guess of how many individual hunters rolled through the refuge? Yeah, I think we had 1,700 permits sold. For deer? 
Or is that deer. called waterfall too? No, that's just deer. That's just deer. Now, do some people buy permits and, and not show up that yeah. year? Yeah. yeah do some happens. people show up and hunt a whole ton? Yeah. And so this past year, we um, asked on the permit application for the first time, how many, how many days on average did you hunt last year? Because we're trying to get a feel for, for exactly that. What's your sense of it? Like, are there, is it kind of like everything where you feel that there's some people that put in the time? Yes. And, and they do real well, and some people that don't, and they don't. Oh, yeah. Is yeah. it kind of like a meritocracy? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the folks that are willing to get out there, put in the time, deal with the mosquitoes. I mean, you know, I was out there on opening day, September 8th, and it was pretty brutal that first, well, actually the whole month <laughs> when it comes to heat and mosquitoes and things like that. A lot of people aren't out there putting that, putting that time in. So if you're willing to put on the chest waders and get out into the marsh and try and go where other people don't go and figure it out, You'll be successful. So what's access like there? So we've got a number of different units. We've got parking lots and, and roads back there. So it depends. Some of the units are easier to access than others. Some you can park and you can go out into open woods and never need to put on waders. Others you could be you could be walking quite a bit out in marsh that's really falling apart. So you take one, two steps, and then you fall through a hole. And what about using uh, canoes and kayaks? Do people do that? Yeah, for the... Uh, this year is the second year that we've allowed boat access to certain units. Okay. Yep. So, and that's been a little bit controversial as well because the people who are able to walk back to those kind of really good secret spots, now all of a sudden they put in an hour walk. And they're literally. mad that some dude shows up in a yeah. boat. Yeah. And, and I, I was with a friend and on one of the units and, and I spent 45 minutes walking back there and, you know, I'm kind of short and <laughs> it doesn't take much to get into a marsh up to my waist. And, uh, you know, I get into a tripod stand and, sit there and right at, at light, you know, you see a boat coming up and, and accessing a different part of the marsh. But that's kind of the, the game. So it, it's an interesting conundrum because we want to offer access for people. Right. You know, for older people who can't do that, what about taking kids? What about taking other folks? If I didn't have my friend helping me get back to that spot, I probably couldn't have gotten back there either. Yeah, at but, least but not you said there stand. are a lot of places that are easy to access. That's correct. There are. So the boat access is limited to a few areas. Um, we're trying it again this year, and we'll see. Oh, so you, yeah, you, you, have the, you have the luxury of being able to see if if it if creates it, too much, yeah, tension between hunters or yeah, yeah. And actually, the bigger trouble that we've been having is people putting in. If you've driven around this area, there's a lot of ditches with water. Especially, it's been kind of dry, very dry until recently. But you could put your kayak or canoe in a ditch almost anywhere and, and get to one of these waterways so that's been an issue with trespassing and trespassing yeah yeah people putting not putting in where they're supposed to for the refuge but putting their boat in in a ditch literally and Uh, then going in so that can cause access issues and if you guys have rules about where how you want where you want people to park yep yep and but the bigger issue is with private landowners so some folks don't know um, and they'll, they'll just put in and, and trespass on other people's property. Yeah. You can get to the refuge through our ramps, but you can also get to the refuge through public, um, I mean, private areas as well, if you have permission. I see. So, so we don't want to cause problems for other people either. Yeah, I got you. And then uh, back to like, like w- what are the hallmarks? Like, so what are the things that the people who are successful at it, like, what do they do? Do you know what I mean? Is there a way you could kind of describe the person who finds success trying to, 
Yeah, I mean... Steve's asking because we've been haunting for two days. We don't <laughs> yeah. have any success yet. So we're just trying to pull out some little I know, tidbits. and I myself, like I said, I've been trying to... I've been gun hunting for a long time, but I've just started bow hunting. And I myself have been trying to get my first sicka as well with my bow. Um, so the thing that, that I've talked to, the people who've really been successful, and, and they like to help other people be successful too, is, is they put the time... I mean, they're looking at aerial maps. They're trying to figure out, okay this guy's going to go in the marsh here and in the woods there, there's crops there. So they're looking at the landscape um, and then they're going out there and scouting and putting the time in to see where's the sign and so forth. Now, when it comes to public lands, that's always a little bit of a crapshoot because when everybody else goes out there, they're going to move the, the deer patterns are going to move because of the people moving yeah. in the woods. That's why early archery is so fun to me anyways. And I think to a lot of people, cause it's so miserable that no one's out there. <laughs> That's right. In some regards. Yeah. Because that first gunshot hasn't gone off. So when muzzle loader opens tomorrow, we're going to see a lot more hunters in the woods. They're going to hear the shots. The deer are going to go a lot more nocturnal and they're not going to act as natural as they had been. So I'm going out tonight and hoping I can get my, <laughs> and, and do you feel that, um, do you feel from what you've seen that that people who are willing to to walk and wade mm-hmm. out to hard to access areas that 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 that's good that, that works for people? Yeah, it, it, it works it... for people. But I've also heard those same exact people be very close to a parking lot and get deer, deer as well. I think it comes down to experience. You can't. You, nothing can replace just getting out there mm-hmm. exactly. and doing it yourself and learning those hard lessons and right. seeing it. Nothing can replace that, and that's yeah. what. I've seen amongst yeah. the, the hunters that I respect and know around and here. Sicker are just a lot tougher because you can't, even even when they're not disturbed by a mm. muzzleloader season yeah. or a firearm season, you can't pattern them like a whitetail. They just, they're a little bit more random. You know, whitetails, you can pretty much guarantee they're going to be on that bean field every night or whatever. Yep. Whereas sickas are a little harder to, to pattern. You just, you know, you got to put yourself in that high percentage area, but you got to do it a whole bunch. So that's what I noticed when hunt, off. hunting with Steve for the last couple of days is I came down like trying to like, you know, I, I was asking a lot of questions about like very specific landscape, like, like, oh, trail intersections mm. or, mm-hmm. and just kind of explain your idea about them. Like, like how you go about stand selection. Yeah. It's, it's like Brian said, I look, I've been disappointed many times sitting over a trail that looks like a cow path. And you think, oh, they've got to come here regularly. It's just a matter of time. And it probably is just a matter of time. But a lot of that activity is at night. And so I've found that sitting on trails per se is not a very productive uh, technique for shooting deer. But And if you look from an aerial photograph, you'll see there's just a network of trails through the marsh and into the woods. Yeah, you can see it from Google Google Earth. yeah. And so it's like a crapshoot whether they're going to take this trail or that trail. So what I try to do is, like Brian just said, find high percentage areas where deer activity gets funneled down. And hopefully that means one's going to come within range. You know, with me shooting traditional archery equipment, it's like 15, 20 yards. So I look for thicker and tighter and heavier cover than probably most people that would be able to shoot a little further. Because you don't care about the 40-yard Deer. Yeah, I mean, I love to see the deer. It's fun to watch them and stuff, but it's way out of my range. To It might as well be 400 if it's 40. Um, but, you know, looking for those patches where maybe the Phragmites pokes a little further in towards the woods or it's it necks down into a narrower strip, uh, and they'll follow the edges of those things. Um, 
They love that switchgrass kind of uh, marshy, wet stuff. They like to have their feet wet. You know, they go on the uplands, but they spend most of their time with their feet wet. Wading around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard that the, the, the first ones I saw, I heard them before I saw them, and it just sounded like stuff running through the water. Yeah. yeah. That's normal. That's just out there. That's a lot of people's first experience. <laughs> <hearing them running. laughs> can, can you, uh, Steve, explain the Phragmites stuff. Oh, Phragmites is a uh, non-native ornamental plant that was introduced, I don't even know when, probably early 1900s, if not sooner. Uh, and it's, you know, escaped become feral. It establishes very dense monotypic stands that crowds out other native plants. Is it a, is it a grass or... I think it is yes, a grass. It yeah, is it's a, grass. a reed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but my it, God, like 12 feet high. Mm-hmm. 12 feet high. It's actually quite beautiful. But uh, Does it like a dozen or more stalks per square foot, I'd have to say? Oh, yeah. It's uh, almost impenetrable. Certainly, you can't get through it without a whole lot of effort. But they just like run around and they're like little muskrats, man. Oh, yeah. The deer do. That's great cover for them. They, uh, that's probably why some of them live to be 20 years old yes i was laughing today you have like a non-native species utilizing a non-native vegetation to great effect yeah yeah absolutely yeah and on the refuge we we try and control phragmites in certain areas which is always interesting because some of the hunters would rather us not they like it there yeah yeah but we can't control it all that's what it's like how would you like what do you try what do you try to do to get rid of it we use rodeo a glyphosate yeah. And we spray that. And we have a machine called a Marsh Master, which is a pretty cool thing that just goes out and, and we spray it. Uh, when we had a slug of funding from a, an outside source, we were able to do some aerial spraying of it a number of years ago, but we can't keep that up. So we yeah. control about 500 acres of Phragmites, which there's a lot more out there. So there's plenty for the for Sika and for hunting. But So you got a spot of 500 acres where you try to keep it native vegetation? Yeah, we have areas that equate to 500 acres. Like our impoundments that we create for waterfowl, we want to keep the Phragmites out of there so that the waterfowl can utilize it over the winter. And then whenever the marsh, we have this uh, marsh migration that's going on. If you go out on the refuge or anywhere around here, you'll see dying trees yep. kind of transitioning to living trees. And that's where the sea level is rising and the marsh is literally migrating upslope. We're so flat here, the marsh can do that. And if it doesn't run into development, it's going to migrate. Yeah, like the highest place in this county is 11 feet or something like that. Something like Probably. that. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds about right. Yeah. So, and and yeah. Steve was saying that just in the time you spent hunting here, you've watched that. Oh yeah, the tree line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dramatic changes in the the tree lines, and you yeah. know some of the places that you saw today when I first started hunting them twelve, fifteen mm-hmm. years ago, those were had big trees you could put tree stands in, and you know more than half of those trees have died, and the ones that are left are just kind of stunted and whatnot. So another ten years from now, they'll all be dead laying on the ground, just and that'll just be water, an open marsh you're looking salt at. Saltwater intrusion. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Blackwater's lost 5,000 acres of marsh to open water since 1933. How many acres? 5,000. Yeah. Really? Yep. And we're still losing it today. And everybody who goes out, the muskrat trappers, the hunters, everybody who goes out there, they can see the changes uh, right before mm-hmm. your eyes. 5,000 acres from marsh to open water. Yep. So that's what we have to deal with. And we're trying to help. We, we want to keep that marsh. You want to keep that high marsh that used to be there, marsh in general. And so as the Phragmites comes in and moves into a lot of these areas where it would have been different species before. So there's certain areas that we target for the Phragmites control and the other places we just, we let it go. Can you explain high marsh? 
Yeah. Well, hi, Marsh. Well, back in the 1930s when the refuge was established, uh, I saw pictures over this weekend of someone who did a history of the refuge where you it, it used to be the marsh was high enough above the water level. You'd have different species of uh, of the, the cord grass, the salt marsh hay, etc. And the cattle could actually graze it. Well, you would never imagine doing that now because with as the marsh has actually, the sea level has risen, water levels have risen, therefore there's a different, it's a low marsh instead. And as more water gets higher and higher, it becomes more broken up. If you look around, you'll see marsh that's just all grass, but if you look in the middle, you'll start to see like potholes of water, yep. open water. That's the marsh just, just uh, degrading, falling apart. And that's not you know what we want to see but that's indeed what's happening so we have to deal with it things change what what species come out as the winner on that uh lo- well fish yeah just more fish <laughs> yeah. we've got more fish now yeah snakeheads yeah uh, carp yeah. and snakeheads yeah 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 so we're losing but you could you could argue that that sika and phragmites are winners in this because mm. they're they're my as this uh marsh is migrating up into the woods the dying woods it's a different species before phragmites and sika it was different species of of the the cord grasses and so mm, forth yeah. three square things like that so, so it's here's, different. here's like a, a probably harder question for you about like managing a refuge and then and then having a species like sick of deer that have a tremendous like hunter interest. Mm. Like I would think if you'd look at the, the, the mandate for the refuge system would not be to provide habitat to a non-native That's correct. ungulate. So do people float the idea of trying to do an eradication or is there, or, I mean, is there, or is there just no negative to them? Uh, certainly we have folks um, that question, oh wait, especially with their deer hunting program, you're managing for Sika. That's a non-native invasive species that some would argue compete with whitetail, yeah, whether or not that's true or not. Yeah. And we argue that, well, you know, they fe- like, like Brian explained, it's, we are managing a, resource for hunters that we don't think is having a detrimental effect to the refuge in and of itself. However, we are trying to um, focus our efforts of harvest on certain areas where they are causing problems. For instance, we plant crops um, for waterfowl so that when they get here, when the geek, which have started arriving, the migrants, that's there, that's supposed to be there for the waterfowl over the winter and the sick in particular, well, all the deer are, um, really hitting those crops hard. So we try and open up Wildlife Drive and some of those areas that are closed to hunting specifically so that hunters can go in and hopefully hit those deer harder so that we can have that resource there for waterfowl. So it's a balancing act. Um, so with the, with the, can you break down the difference between the refuge and the, what's the other thing? The, 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 the State wildlife management areas. Yeah, but what river is it? Not the Savage, but. You're talking uh, about fishing bay. Fi- that's that's fishing what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Fishing bay wildlife management area. Yeah. So break like break down for me what those two things are. Sure. I'll talk about so National Wildlife Refuges are we're federally owned by the US Fish and Wildlife Service. And so that was the first refuge, like I mentioned, was Pelican Island back in nineteen oh three. And we're the only lands, federally loan owned lands set aside specifically for wildlife and wildlife dependent recreation for people. So like the hunting and fishing that we talked about. Uh, we've got 566 around the country, and Blackwater is is one of those. We were established back in 1933, primarily for waterfowl, but also for other species of wildlife as well. And, uh, yeah, so we follow federal mandates of the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, 
which includes allowing visitors and those types of activities that are compatible for wildlife conservation. And, and the Blackwater Refuge actually shares a border with Fishing Bay. Fishing Bay, yeah. correct. And Fishing Bay is state. That's a state wildlife management area. Most of those were purchased with Pittman-Robertson funds. A lot of, I mean, that's pretty, you know, wildlife management areas are pretty common across the country. So yep. um, Fishing Bay, I think that's our largest, our largest mm-hmm. one is 50 or however, 25 plus thousand acres or whatever it is. Um, and so, they, fo- they form one contiguous piece of marsh, though. More yeah, or less, more, more or, or less. less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep. And how many acres total of, it's like, how many acres total of public land are there in this area? Uh, a good bit. I don't know the percentage-wise. We're, we're a little over 29,000 acres. Now, that includes Martin, the island, uh, and some of our other yeah. smaller refuges, but certainly most of it's at Blackwater. And uh, Fishing Bay is about 25. And Taylor's Island. There's WMA at Taylor's Island. So, I mean, there's a a lot of public land in the area. I mean, you know, 50,000 plus acres easily. Um, Not all contiguous, but, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of So 50,000 acres of of, of seeka deer habitat. A lot of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's like water, so it's not. Yeah, a lot of it, yeah. A good percentage of it right here. a good percentage Mm -hmm. of it, yep. 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 And how and there's how many deer? Ten to fifteen thousand. Do you guys feel that? Uh, do you guys feel that that it's a thing that people don't really know about? I, I think the Sika they know about. They seem to very. But I'll tell you what. Like, I, mean, I mean, I mean nationally. Oh, I, nationally. I went, no. I went my whole life without no. knowing about. I happened yeah. to come down here one time. A friend no. of mine was at some fundraiser auction for Ducks Unlimited, and somehow or another wound up with a snow goose hunt. <laughs> Invited me to come along on it for like a day, and I heard this guy talking about like these like marsh deer. Ah, yeah, sick of deer, marsh deer, and it was kind of in one ear and out the other. But I was, the, I remember that was like the first time I ever had any idea. Yeah, we've been no planning this trip that. for two years, and I've yet to tell somebody, "Yeah, we're going to Maryland to hunt sika deer," and have someone go, "Oh yeah." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Remy Warren was the only one. You know, but, but he's got his he's got his finger to the pulse, man. And, and I do know that all the locals want to keep it kind of their their right? own little secret. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, they're but, feeling the cat is out of the bag. You know, their perception is that we're overrun with non-residents and come here is yeah. looking to hunt sika deer and but the numbers don't bear that out no not really they don't i mean it's definitely they are well known in the mid-atlantic so you know you see a lot of delaware hunters you see a lot of pennsylvania hunters you see a fair number of new jersey hunters virginia hunters you do coming down um, yes yeah so, you know so it's more it's a local mid-atlantic they're well known um, among the deer hunting community um, but once you get outside of that range, and there's been quite a few celebrities that have been here hunting them and have done shows on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done, you know, I don't know, I can't even count four or five, six, half a dozen different, you know, over the years, different interviews with different hunters that, that have come. So it has attracted national, you know, at that at that level. But but it's definitely more still a local, more local type phenomena. So one of the things I could imagine limits it a little bit is they have dinky little antlers. So yeah. it's like it's like you gotta have a, but yeah. I'm, I'm not hacking that because I don't really care. But I mean, it's like you gotta have like a connoisseur's eye to appreciate. Yeah, you gotta recognize, yeah, they're not they're not a 
elk. Yeah, you know? it, I, mean, I mean, if it happened so. to have some freakish giant antlers, there, right. it's just a fact it, that more people would be interested. Sad to say, but you're <laughs> but you're right. So, but have you tried one? Have you eaten one yet? No, yeah, they are so good. That's awesome. what I heard. They are yeah. much tastier than. Yeah. I heard people almost universally like them better than. Yeah, they yeah. Do. I would they say do. that's true. Steve had a word to describe whitetail meat where you you called it kind of minerally. Yeah, I've heard that term before. Yeah. It, 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 it's a slight metallic or livery taste is what I And you prefer with. these? I prefer the Sika deer, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love whitetail too, but uh, there's something that Sika backstrap is just... I've never talked to anybody that take that would pref- prefer whitetail ever. So it's like widely... Yeah. It's, universal. It it's pretty much universal. Yeah, you talk mm, to It's good. Not just, you know, the flavor and, and then the texture, texture too. Like I say, or most of the time they're more tender than... That white tail. Yeah. Oh man, it's oh. killing me that I haven't got yeah. one. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah, I don't. I want to get back to the antlers because I want to be hacking on them. But I mean, you got some ones that are that are were described to me, Steve. You've killed some that were described to me by not just you, by being like trophy class seek a deer yeah the three i showed you just about anybody would would get mounted as and they're you know a trophy. Yeah, and it's like they're like. I'm not dogging at them. I'm oh, just saying it's like a little. It's no like a. It, it's like yeah, three three tines per antler, yeah. And then the main beam is 16 yeah. inches long, maybe for a huge one. 16. 16 is yeah. a really big one. 16 is yeah. a really big one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 16 be a. Rare and you're saying average. that like more like an eight point is like virtually unheard of. Very rare. Very rare. a true eight point is extremely rare. But it's an elkish kind of little antler. Yeah. Yeah, they're really cool. Nice yeah. eye guards and and you do get some. Uh, different configurations sometimes whether it's generated by injuries or either to the antler when it's growing or to the deer their body when they're growing antlers but that you know three by three configuration is your typical mature stag and you'll get a lot of i call them uh glorified spikes these little six pointers that are just little nubbins (laughs) for eye guards and and the top points the splits we call them i saw one of those today yeah yeah yearlings are always spikes i've never seen a branched antler yearling and then at two and a half they they'll be what you just described one of those little you know weak you might be able to call them a six point but maybe a four point or whatever mm-hmm. and then it takes two and a half or it takes three and a half and up to start getting into maturity and you know true six points yeah and then these guys don't have twin fawns either right no just single calf yep that i've ever seen um and that's in the literature all would suggest that only they only ever have a single calf i've had different reports over the years people said no she had twins or whatever but um i've only ever seen yeah single yep. single calf now marshy I, I overheard you earlier before we got started you were yes. saying you've passed like you haven't got one with your bow but you've passed up shots i've passed up several spikes why <laughs> that's just me i just i just want to let the let the little guys grow and and i wanted to get well let me all right let me talk about the other week so it was it last week or the week before it was one of those really hot days and i had a spike under and i had a shot but it was also you know it was really hot with the rut so i kept thinking another a mature stag was going to possibly come in or a hind i'd rather take a hind or a mature stag is going to let the little guy go so how that was it- just me at that time now if it had been late january i think i probably would have just taken him but because it was early in the season and the rut was on 
that's what I chose to do. How did it come to pass that it was under your tree? Like what happened? Oh, I was hunting a friend's that was actually under, I was actually hunting bait that time. You were? I was. I've been, I've hunted bait and I've not hunted bait. And my preference is to not hunt bait. My properties that I lease, I'm not baiting this year. I did last year to try it out. It's a lot of, I'm just not going to do it. I, I don't, just not my preference. However, trying to get my first sicka and my first bow kill, I'm all, if a friend's going to ask me, I'm also not going to pass it up. <laughs> so, so have you been out? You, have you been out hunting on the refuge too? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes, yes. So I you have. spread it out. And tomorrow's going to be. I've never hunted muzzleloader before. Tomorrow's my first day muzzleloader hunting ever, and I'm going on the refuge. Yeah. So you're going to do the opening day of muzzleloader. I am, it. and I, it's it's the quota day. I'm in the unit that everybody complains about has too many people on it because as a staff person, um, just treat me like someone else. In fact, treat me worse, you know. <laughs> so I'm going out there and, and going to So you're, you're going to go out with your bow tonight? I'm going out with my bow tonight onto my, my private lease, which is not baited. And there's whitetail and sicka there. Um, however, there's yeah, there's some nice whitetails there too. So I'm going there tonight, hope, you know, see if I can finally... Mm-hmm. <sighs> make that happen and then tomorrow i'm going muzzle loader and do you already have do you already have your stand like like do you already have your stand set up on the refuge no i'm using my climbing stand so i went and scouted i picked a spot and since i'm hunting by myself tomorrow and i'm kind of i'm not very big you know t- height wise or anything i've got to be able to take care of that deer myself so i didn't go out into the marsh and like if i if i was hunting with buddies i didn't go to where i would normally go i had to be smart about it. Where can I go and take care of a deer myself if I get it? Yeah. Well, I think tomorrow you're definitely so. going to have to shoot a spike because if you shoot some giant like that as the refuge manager on I the know. first day of Muzzle Hunt, you're going to catch a lot of flags. <laughs> so, I know, I know, I know. So do you have to take a vacation day? Oh, yeah. You bet. You can't just act like you're out there doing something no. else. No. <laughs> With a muzzleloader. No, no. Nope, I will be hunting. Um, so you got to put time. in for va- you got to put in for vacation, and I got to put in for the quota and get selected too. Yeah. Which yeah. you know, yeah, I'm in the unit that's still open, so <laughs> just to still avoid, just, to, just to avoid any feel of uh, yeah of, of, of privilege or special. That's treatment. right, that's right. And I was hunting a, a unit with my with my bow the very first day, and I'll be hunting back there again too. Oh, so you you've already you've already hunted the refuge with your bow this yes. year? Yes, so on the bo- opening you bounce, day, you bounce around a lot. Yes. And you'll, and you'll keep hunting until January. Yes. I did last year. I, yeah. And that was uh, down at my lease that I was, yeah, just whitetail down there. And then a friend would take me once in a while for sicker around here. And so I would do that. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place. And if I see something I don't want... Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's 
features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like You still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. If you could yeah. tolerate the cold, January is a great time to hunt. Is it? Yeah. There's not many people out. No. They, no. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I had to, I ended yeah. up keep buying more and more stuff because I kept yeah. getting colder and colder. <laughs> <laughs> so the little inserts, the foot, you got to turn them on yep. for your boots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I got those. Fewer it's, mosquitoes. You'll still have mosquitoes in January. You will. You really? will. If it war- if you, Man. So you I never heard day. of the thermosel till I yeah. came here and started hunting. Those are nice. And that's yeah. like the, you have to have that yeah. here. You have to have that. So I'm trying. I'm putting my time in. I think it's gonna happen for you. Yeah. So did you not? So so did you not start hunting till uh, till as a grown up? Yeah, till about twenty three, twenty four, something like that. That was the first time I actually hunted something. Gotcha. Yeah. Started off with bird hunting, and then moved to deer. 
Whitetails. Yeah, whitetails. Because I'm from Western Pennsylvania, so that's so all whitetails. Yeah. And now you're working in on the local, uh, the sika deer. Yeah, yeah. And I never thought I'd be able to bow hunt. I just didn't think I could pull enough weight back, and it just you know, it's a lot of pressure. But I really you, love it. You've been at it two years now. This is my second season bow hunting. Oh, so you're not? It's no, not, no, it's not a problem that you haven't gotten one yet. No. No, I'm all right. I don't yeah. know if I should start feeling sorry for you, but nah. it sounds like you're right on track. No, I've I've gun hunted. Second I've got season a, of bow hunting. Yes. You'll kill something season. this year. Yeah. And last year, like I said, I did pass up, uh, well, at the least down in Somerset County, we, those of us in it, we have this, we don't shoot anything less than an eight point. So when I had some smaller bucks kind of under my stand, I didn't take it because that was kind of the informal rules. Mm-hmm. For seekers. No, for whitetail. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, for whitetail. I was like, so from yeah. what I heard, you're not you're gonna be waiting a long time. High <laughs> <laughs> standards, yeah. Whitetails only. So that's 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 us. So myself, I'll take a hind or a mature, any sort of mature stag. But you ask me again a little bit later, and yeah, maybe I will take a spike. All right. no, I got, I got <laughs> With my bow. La- I got one last question. Last night when you guys were talking, another thing I overheard. Were you saying that like I'm holding this? I'm holding a stag here that Steve killed. That's missing a tine. Were you saying that someone found that tine? Yeah. So in another deer. Yep, a fellow hunter that uh, hunted the same property that I do shot a six point that was about the same caliber as that uh, that seven point there, and uh, two you know very mature stags. And he got his mounted and he took his taxidermist as they were caping it out. The uh, uh, taxidermist found a. A length of bone that matched up perfectly with what was missing off the tip of that one antler there where is it now uh he's got it yeah he didn't give it to you no really did you ask no. him no no it's, it's just kind of his trophy so i didn't want to take huh. that but huh. uh, yeah it was pretty you like this guy neat. yeah he's a good guy <laughs> i don't know about that what do you think about that <laughs> they are extremely aggressive when well, he's they, a fan of your program, so when he hears this, oh, so I'm not gonna say anything. I don't want to say anything bad. I don't want to say anything bad about the brother. Obviously, he's got impeccable taste. <laughs> but that just uh, all right. Hey, Brian, have you gotten to witness them fighting? Yeah, so it's brutal. Really? Yeah, they're 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 impressive, and like they, you can't see the skull that we're holding, but this would all be fat. So they have over an inch of fat on that skull to help protect against you know there's points and all but they are just brutal but you know they there uh, there's no question there's a lot that that die every year just from injuries injuries mm-hmm. yeah yeah do so. you find do you find sheds you probably can't find the sheds because of the habitat type right or do you know and then find them every once in a yeah, while you do. yeah you can find them mm-hmm. so yeah you, you can find them not in the marsh you're not going to find them yeah it just seems like if they drop yeah. out in that that yeah they're going pretty quick frag stuff you're not gonna yeah I did find one in Frag once, so I was tracking a deer that I'd hit. And, uh, oh, really? Blood trailing them? Yeah. And I'm, I look down, and here's <laughs> this beautiful hmm. three-point antler sitting there. They are little elk, so they do have beautiful. Oh, look at or, that. Or oh, I- they got ivories. Ivories, yeah. So being a, being a little elk, they are. Little so. vestigial tusks. Yep. So, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Brian, is it roar or bugle, the sound they make? I've always just heard bugle. Kiwis Kiwis will talk about the the roar. Yeah. But I think it just kind of spill over from the red deer roar and anything that ruts, they just call the roar. But uh, here it's bugling. Yeah, I think we just just equate it with elk. Elk. So bugling, yeah. And it's a weird, like, I don't know if I could exactly explain it. It's, um, 
To me, it's more of like a whistle. Multi-pitch whistle, yeah, sta- yeah. in stages. Yeah. yeah. And if you hear from a distance, you only hear the whistle. But if you're closer, which we've gotten mm. to be close enough a couple of times, you also hear that there's a little bit of grr at the beginning and then just a little bit at the end. And then there's another call. What would you call it when you're real close? The Kiwis call it a, a, a hee-haw. It starts out as a real high-pitched kind of E sound, and then it, it drags off into this aw sound. So it's like a yeah. Really, uh, nothing else sounds like it. It's yeah. kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, and what tripped us up is I think it was the first day that we were hunting with you, I think, and we we thought we had heard him. It was, the wind was kind of blowing, so it was mm-hmm. tough to hear anything at all. But both Steve and I come, get together, and we're like, man, we, I, we, I think we heard a bugle, but it, it, was like, it must have been a guy because it was like three in a row. Like, who would be doing that? Right, and we go to Steve, and he's like, "Oh yeah, every time they bugle, yeah. it's you know." And I've heard now twos, threes, mm-hmm. and even fours. It yeah. seems like, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have that recording? Yeah, yeah. This is one I videoed uh, last season on Blackwater, and uh, called it in with a cow call. Came across the marsh about two hundred yards and wandered. Well, it didn't wander. It, it came pretty directly to me, and. Uh, Got within 20 yards, didn't find this challenger that had, had called at him, and uh, so he let out the one cow. of his own. Well, I actually had bugled earlier, and then oh. uh, he came out of the woods about 200, 250 yards away, and I watched him, and he was clearly riled up. He made about four or five wallows on the backside of this, this marsh. They roll around in the mud and get their antlers all dug into the marsh and pee on themselves, and just a... And the wallows, to break off from the sound real quick, it's uh, it's small, probably, what, maybe two square feet? Yeah, probably. Something like that. And it, it, they look to me, every time I've seen one, it's, it's not like it was, it, they continue to use the same one, right? They, they look like they could just like randomly stop anywhere and be like, oh, making a new wallow, right? Yeah, they will reuse them also, but... Um, most of the ones I think you see are just one-offs. Venting. That's what it seems yeah. like, yeah. yeah. Which is why I don't bother hunting them, you know. I mean, it's nice to have a bunch around because, you know, there's a stag there, but I don't set up my tree stand over a wallow because it's just, you can wait forever for them to show up. Right. Once in a while, you'll find one that looks like it's probably sort of communal sort of wallow, and it'll be 10 feet wide and just shoot up and whatnot. But most of them are just sort of frustration being taken out i think mm. but now martha you're telling me you set your stand up over oh and no, i just look for wallows okay. yeah look for sign okay yeah a scrape you called it were you were you talking about a wallow when you told me well that? uh i said look for sign like trails and wallows and yeah. scrapes like for whitetail and things like that but not necessarily that you would set up on there just try and determine where are they moving through Oh, but I'm sorry, but yeah, but you told me in a, I thought, was it in an email? You said something about a scrape. Oh, and you and that, that was, on a scrape. was that, that for was, whitetails? That was for white, that was uh, my, uh, f- my hunt last, last week. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that I, I was looking for signs, um, at, at my lease, uh, which has whitetails and sicka and the buck that had come in had a scrape. I didn't realize it. But when I watched him actually work the scrape, then I realized it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It happened to be near a pond, and there was a lot of sign going in and out. Like, um, it was really, it's been really dry, so there was, like, a lot of dried mud on the vegetation. So I was hoping, you know, okay, the sick are going to come from the woods to the pond in the evening because it's hot, and it's my best chance. I didn't know 
that there was also a whitetail that was making a pretty nice scrape there. Right. Until I saw. Excellent stand mm-hmm. placement. Fairness. Yeah, 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 exactly. All right, let's hear the... Cue it up. So that real guttural uh, sort of start and finish, a lot of people don't hear that if it's not real close to you. You just right. hear the high-pitched whistle part. But most of the commercially available calls that are out there don't really capture that. And, you know, I don't think that it's necessary for the deer to respond to it. Um, but for my own sort of personal confidence in the call I'm blowing, I just like to to be as authentic as possible, you know. Right. And, uh so the one call I've found that actually captures that part is the Nordic Sika, and that uh, it's manufactured in Sweden. And uh, it's a pretty neat call. Uh, it's a one-trick pony. Uh, it really only does the the uh, the bugle, and you could probably do the hee-haw kind of sound with it, too, if you really practiced at it. But uh, So I always carry uh, standard elk calls, too, uh, so I can make the myriad of sounds. But, right. but uh, it's it's pretty exciting when they respond to it. Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm going to blow mine 100 times tonight to try to get a response. <laughs> Brian, have you guys done it, ever any research on the, the vocalizations? No, we have not. But if you if you read the literature, um, you know, what I've read is that Sika are the, Sika are the most vocal of, of the survey. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and if you spend a lot of time out there, there are, I mean, there's six, seven different vocalizations yeah. you can you can pick up not just not just the stags but the hinds with the calves and just yeah they're they're and if you had to describe the the hind calf call like a mew they almost elk like mew yeah Mm -hmm. yeah very similar yeah very similar so the other one too i'm not sure if you've probably heard yet but uh they do this really low guttural growl and it almost sounds like they're hawking a loogie or something and it's there's no pitch to it it's just this uh, and it's when you hear that you know it's usually from what i've seen it's challenges to another stag you know yeah yeah you don't hear that unless they're within probably 50 75 yards unless it's a real still day and just perfect which is a mile in phragmites (laughs) 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 yeah um yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. But the thing about us being new here and in that marsh, you're hearing so many other noises. Mm-hmm. I mean, the um, the herons, you know, squawking. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. You could easily confuse a, a weird heron squawk for something that the Sika deer is making. Yeah, the great blues, yep. yeah. Yeah, and then so, yeah. what? Uh, who else is out there making just some really odd... I mean, we've heard barred owls and, you know, oh, yeah. owls, you know... Screech owls. They go all over the place with their noises. Yeah. Um, there's uh, clapper rails they don't really sound like Sika but you know if you're new to it and you've never heard it before I remember the first year I hunted them I heard that they made this you know bugle sound but I had no idea what it sounded like so everything I heard out there when I was sitting in a tree stand was is that one is that one no is that one and flickers will make a a very similar sound to their alarm calls and their muse sometimes I was just going to say, my first couple of years of elk hunting, I put at least a dozen stalks on the Western Flicker yeah. before I before my mind, you know, learned to dial in that mute. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember the first time a stag bugled close to me and the hair in my neck stood up. I was like, ah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. If we still had Nutria, you'd be listening to yeah, yeah. sitting out there in your oh, stand gosh, listening yeah. to Nutria all the time. Yeah. So that was another yeah. marsh well, sound. We'll have to cover that when we do the Nutria yeah. podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um cool. Anything else to add, Brian, about the vocalization? Yeah. Marsha? I think so. Cool. That'll be I would perfect. Just say we, that we can... uh you know, you gotta give it a fair shot. Don't expect something your first time or your second or maybe even your 10th time, but sooner or later they'll respond to it and uh, look every direction. They'll circle behind you. They'll sneak in on you. Sometimes they'll run you over like a bulldozer. It's, uh, uh, it can be pretty exciting. Imagine, you know, calling in a 70 pound turkey with antlers. Right. Yeah. We're three hunts in now, meaning that we've hunted two mornings, one evening and twice now I've heard the footsteps and, I believe it to be probably less than 60 yards if I can hear that. And I've yet to see one. Yeah. The, well, either of the, I've seen them in the distance, but I've yet to see the two that make that. In range, in yeah. game. Yeah. But I think it's because I'm a bad tree stand hunter. Because I, <laughs> I, I haven't like remembered all my old skills about how you had to stand there like a statue. I think, yeah. I'm, I think I'm up there stretching out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> all right, cool. All right, Yanni, you got any final uh, things you want to add? I like that the, the wire job you did on this for hanging. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. noticing that too. Dude, that is nice. That is fancy. Did you invent that? Probably can't really invent that much when it comes to wires and skulls. Well, it was just something I came up with. Uh, I was too cheap to buy anything to do it, and I like. <laughs> I just like a simple. I like, you know, taxidermy is. I'm gonna take a picture of this wiring all. job, and we're gonna put it up. <laughs> we're gonna put it up in the show notes. On it. You're, you're gonna, you're gonna. Yeah. This picture is being taken right now. And if you want to see a sweet way to wire up a Euro mount, go to our, oh, it turned out real nice. Go to our show notes. It gives you that flat against the wall hang, too, as opposed yeah. to a screw, which will pop them out right. a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right, so I just yeah, like I, to pick oh. them up and hold them, look at them, remember the hunt. Can't do that with a big mount on the wall, you know? No, I like schools a lot better, Something man. tactile about being able to touch it. And, and it makes moving easier. Yes, it does. <laughs> moving would be, like, daunting, if you had a taxidermy everywhere. Uh-huh. Like, where am I going to put my full draft? Yep. <laughs> um, I don't have a full like draft. You, said, <laughs> you can haul that around with your helicopter. The Delmarva squirrels. Oh, yeah. Oh. Delmarva yeah. fox squirrel. I've seen, I've seen what, say it? It's the Delmarva fox squirrel. Fo- it's a fox squirrel. Yeah. And Yanni it, says it lumbers through the forest. <laughs> it lumbers down trees. I saw my, <laughs> that's a big guy. I saw my second one today. The first one I saw just coming down a tree. And these, um, what, what kind of pine is it? Lob, 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 Lob. Another damn non-native. Oh. Right? Loblaws are non-native. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeez. That's what, is that what Abernathy's trying to get rid of? That's what Abernathy's whole big gripe is. is uh, oh. You know, they cut down all the long leaf. Mm. Um pitch and like masting all kinds of things and then loblolly came up in its place but it doesn't have it doesn't support it does, doesn't support that understory of like that grassland ecosystem underneath it yeah this whole led place to all was, kinds of trouble with the quail and whatnot yeah this is all planted in loblolly loblolly mm-hmm. plantations yeah. we need to have abernathy on to talk about loblollies and yeah long well, hopefully we'll be seeing him this spring yeah anyhow yeah, well, the, the bark flakes. 
Like mm-hmm. when you're climbing it, you know, there's just bark coming off everywhere. Well, this squirrel, I mean, it was like an avalanche of bark <laughs> as this dude's climbing down the tree. You know, I'm like, holy cow, I've never seen that. But the one I saw today, he, I, he got, to go, got to watch him under the stand and on the ground. You know how most squirrels, like, they sort of hop. Um, well, they're always hopping, you know, like yeah. two, three times. This dude was walking like a cat. Yeah. Like he's got a gait to him. You know, like a bear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So my question is, is what's it, what are the chances that we're going to get to come here and hunt them someday? Well, they had ESA protection until recently, didn't they? They were yeah. recently downlisted. Yeah, they're yeah. they're not a listed species anymore. How come that so. didn't make the news? Well, it did. It just depended on what news yeah. you were watching. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but <laughs> only like, but news, you know, but only only two percent of species that get ESA listing have get, ever made it off uh-huh. get delisted because of recovery. Right. Uh-huh. They get delisted because it was a mistake. And there's like a taxonomical error or they get delisted because there's a population people weren't aware of. But I think it's like 1.7% of things that get on come off because of recovery. Like so American usually, alligator guy. Yeah. So you just like a big story, right? Like yeah. the bald eagle yep. now wolves in some areas, grizzly bears in some areas, you usually like hear about a delisting. Yeah. But this was a quiet delisting. Yeah. The Delmarva was excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh, I know this isn't. Well, maybe I don't you know. think there's any plans to hunt them. No, no, there's future. not. Yeah, so they're just they, there's too much habitat loss. Yeah. It's too small of a subspecies yeah, too, population. Yeah. yeah, but it's a fox squirrel. Mm-hmm. Yes, just a big fox squirrel. Yes, not but just. you could you could come here and just hunt gray squirrels and fox squirrels and have the uh, enjoyment of getting to see a Delmarva. Mm-hmm. I guess they right? seem like pretty small gray squirrels from what I've been seeing. Oh really? I mean, not the big giant Delmarva fox squirrel. I'm saying your 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 general Joe Blow gray squirrel is not like a small squirrel, huh? Yeah, I I I haven't been looking at them, and I mean, not that I wouldn't hunt them happily, but they, they seem to run a little small, which would be like part of Bergman's rule, right? <laughs> Bergman's principle. That's at the you're at the southern. Closer you get you're to the, the equator, at, the smaller they get. Well, yeah, you're at the <laughs> yeah. southern. You're getting toward the, the, the your more southerly portion of their range. So they're going to tend toward a more diminutive form. And I would say squirrel hunting is probably not as culturally big around this area as it Mm -hmm. is in some other parts of the country. You don't hear about people. People aren't as sophisticated down here. (laughs) I don't know. Well, and it's, I mean, it's, it's shifted, you know, I mean, it's deer is king down here and people don't want squirrel hunters messing up their deer woods. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've heard that's the thing is the squirrel hunters become, it's such a shame. The squirrel hunter has become such a second-class citizen. I have had guys come to me and, and say that – I've had two things happen. I've had friends come and say that they feel bad hunting squirrels hmm. during deer season. And I've had squirrel hunters come to me and say this happened to Murphy, Kevin Murphy, who a guy has gotten down out of his tree stand on public land in the Manistee National Forest in my home state of Michigan – a guy got down out of his tree stand to accost my friend for having the audacity – to be out hunting squirrels yeah, during archery deer oh, season, wow. I would have punched that guy in the face. Yeah, it's, mm. that's a, that's a little much. But we you know, do. I would have felt as though I was going to do. Yeah, that. we have to. You know, we have a really long deer season mm-hmm. in Maryland. You know, from September to the end of so January. Someone's going to be hunting deer when you're out in the woods. Well, it just, it makes it tough. I mean, you know, for for small game hunters, squirrel hunters, and all, because everything you know, a lot of it is leased up for deer hunting and all, and and so that's one of the reasons why we don't have. <laughs> squirrel hunters or small game hunters is because oh. is because it's all taken up by deer you know and and there's been different times where we've been asked to extend deer season even longer into february and it's like you know that just 
that just takes more, even more time away from you know these folks that want to that want to do you know these yeah. other these other hunts. So, you know, yeah, that, there's it's, it's there's a challenge. Vo- yeah, there's validity to that because you know we used to hunt squirrels because squirrel season. Well, it uh, archery deer open oct- October one, squirrel open September fifteenth. Yeah. So you'd pour the coals to the squirrels for two right. weeks, and then you'd pick them back up again when deer season ended. Yeah. So you'd be hunting them, you know, after yeah. Christmas, you'd hit them hard until the end of season. Yeah. And that's like kind of like when you hunted squirrels. Yeah. So, but here, you know, you have the first, you know, you have the first week of September, basically, because deer season comes into Friday after Labor Day. So you have the first week of September in general. And then, like I said, you might have a couple weeks in February. And otherwise, you got to, if you're a squirrel hunter or a small game hunter, you got to share the woods with deer hunters. Hmm. That, it's not always real fun. So if you're a deer hunter down here, you're hunting deer five months out of the year. You start the Friday after Labor Day and go to January 31st. Yeah. Man. And then if you... I'm going to move down here. And then if you want to like hunt some <laughs> of the urban managed hunts, some of those yeah. do go into February. So you could be hunting. You could be it's hunting like into usually, February. It's usually deer season. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that? then you uh, can wait for spring and turkey hunt. Yeah. And then a couple I got months, my first... I went turkey... turkey. Got my first turkey this year. Did you? That was like the greatest thing ever. Yeah. That was a ton of fun. Yeah. Telling you what, man. That that's was even, fun. That's, that's even more exciting than squirrel hunting. Well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have, did you have any uh, final thoughts, Marsha? Myself? Yeah. Ah, no, just say, hey, come on over to Blackwater, check it out. Come hunt, come visit. Well, you're going to get all kinds of the hunters mad at you for saying that. Oh, I know, but that's okay. But yeah, they we're might, public, they might, yeah, they might bump into you out in the woods. We're a public resource. We're there. Yeah, you got to get. We got to get more hunters engaged, yeah. and we've got to get people who haven't hunted before get excited about it. And the only way we're going to do that is if we're welcoming to new hunters. And so, and can people personally call? People. Can people personally call you up and ask you what's up? People do. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I encourage that. Yeah. We have public meetings. I talk to folks who yeah, get ideas and comments. Does it mean I can do everything that people suggest? No. No, I mean but if some guys it, like if it. some guys like, hey man, I'm going to come down and check out this seek a deer thing. There's resources for him, or him or her to figure it out. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. No, I think it's really important that we get more people to see the benefits of hunting and just getting outdoors in general. I noticed, but too, we've got to be have, welcoming to do it. I noticed too that you guys have made. Uh, the hunt unit maps available on google earth and yep. for download so you can look at it out on your smartphone through avenza uh, yep. that's probably the biggest uh impedance to new seeker hunters is it's I an agree. intimidating landscape you oh know, yeah you get yeah. out there and, and yeah. uh especially blackwater and that's like the nastiest of the nasty stuff mm-hmm. on fishing bay and blackwater and that's where most new seeker hunters go to and it's uh it's you can get lost out there easy and uh it turns a lot of people off. A lot of people come down, try it once, and it's like, oh, no, more of that for me. To give you a but sense, uh, I was watching a video where a guy was hunting seek a deer out of his boat. Just to give you just like a, yeah, like an example to give you a sense of the landscape. And he was talking about the importance of raising, when he leaves his boat, of raising a flagpole. He must not be mm-hmm. a big GPS guy. Of raising <laughs> a flagpole with a blaze orange flag on it. Yeah. yeah, you can lose your boat, so he can re, so he can yeah. locate his boat. Yep. Yeah. yeah, but don't let that scare you off. I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's a great, it's a great. Area. You said earlier. I mean, it's a fish and wildlife mecca. Or, yeah, you know, yeah, sure, I mean, man. You know, you can hunt, have, hunt yeah. multiple species. You can go fishing. I mean, you can pack so much into 
a week's trip or a weekend trip or whatever. I mean, it's really an awesome. Yeah, we haven't even touched location. on blue crabs and snakeheads. Exactly. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. So, uh, uh, Brian, you got any concluding thoughts you want to add? Things you didn't get a chance to? No, just there are great species. There are unique species, and it's the only place in the country or probably maybe in the world that you can hunt these guys, and they're probably one of the pure strains around of sika deer a lot of sika deer have been hybridized and all so it's really a unique opportunity um to yeah have um this is my concluder it's a question have i know you guys have some cwd in maryland yes have cwd positive whitetails interfaced here's what i'm getting at any idea about whether cwd is going to make the jump um can so no i mean uh, in maryland from a geography standpoint they're nowhere close and we got the whole chesapeake bay separating so cwds in western maryland i see um so i wouldn't expect necessarily our seek deer to be exposed to cwd from that standpoint um it's very plausible that 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 sick of deer you know are susceptible of cwd no one no one stuck them together in a pen yet to see no, what to see no, if they transmits no um, well they've done it with monkeys yeah oh yeah they've done a lot of you know they've done a lot of testing like that um just recently yeah yeah that the research out of canada shows that yeah macaques that they were able to infect macaques with cwd i guess kind of like implanting it yeah it was really well they didn't implant it but it was really aggressive at higher aggressive higher loads than what you would expect like you or I sitting down and eating venison tonight for dinner. So, but that, you know, that's still, you know, you have to look at that and, and take that into consideration. And the CDC does, you know, they, they looked at it and they actually changed their wording for, you know, for, for hunters that are hunting in CWD areas. And they're a little bit more, um, strongly, they've more strongly worded it now that you should really consider getting your deer tested if you're if you're hunting in a CWD area. That's what I've done uh, the last couple of years, man. When I've hunted CWD areas, it's just it's it's the problem is it's hard because there's not a lot of areas to get that testing done. Um, so we need to make some improvements there um, for for hunters, you know, to be able to do that. Um, but back to your original question. They're, you know, our, our sick of deer are little elk. Um, they're in the serve, you know, service family. So I'm sure they're probably susceptible to CWD. I wouldn't see why they, why they wouldn't yeah. be, you know. I mean, elk are deer are, white-tailed yeah. deer, mule deer, elk. Yeah, moose, you know. Fowler deer are about the only ones that come to mind that I don't think, you know, they've been able to to get CWD into fallow deer. Really? Um, yeah. So, but, um, so that's an interesting question yeah. you asked though, Steve, cause it made me think of something that I have a question for you, Brian. Recently, you know, this is the time of year where EHD and blue mm-hmm. tongue starts hitting deer and, and people are finding a lot of dead white tails this time of year. Mm-hmm. And increasingly I'm seeing guys on the internet forums referring to, Oh, it's either CF- CWD or EHD. And they're talking about Eastern shore populations mm-hmm. and, People are starting to sling the term around like it's it's commonplace and whatnot. Yeah. And I wonder if the department's doing any outreach to sort of combat that perception that Yeah, we you know, hemorrhagic disease, blue tongue. Oh, I'm yeah. sure you know that, right? Well we're in the midst of a pretty good outbreak right here in, in Dorchester and Caroline and Talbot. So we, Yeah, but it's kinda like I mean, I don't mean to but that's not as scary. No, 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 it's not. You're right. Because like a there's, not a, it, there's not a human concern. Yeah, there's like a thing that happens. But a lot of our hunters through. But a lot of our hunters, I don't think... Use them interchangeably. Yeah, use them inter- and don't realize that they're two separate diseases. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've we've 
done press releases about mm-hmm. HD and yeah, but that'd be like saying your buddy, like, oh no, he's got the flu or cancer. Yeah, I mean, it's just like <laughs> yeah, it's just like they're two different things. It is. Man. It's completely different. You know, I mean, I mean, completely different magnitude. Um, a lot of hunters probably feel HD is more of a threat than CWD because screws up the hunt yeah screws up the hunt in a hurry um, yeah uh you know i mean we probably you know we we, we've got there's a couple areas over here where we've we've probably had a pretty good you know hit on the deer population now they'll bounce back in a year or two that's the thing man Um, five years you'll be back to having not even five years no i'm saying you'll be back to having big oh yeah 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 so but um but yeah so it's a concern from that standpoint um but but from a human standpoint cwd is definitely the you know the one we have to watch um, and be more concerned about so oh, stuff keeps me up at night. what's maybe. a big hit for ehd like um, what percentage a really big hit would be 50 percent of the population oh, that's a big hit and that can well, i thought a big hit was 70 or something like that. uh well you know what if you're in a, in a if you're in a naive state like a pop deer population that's never seen it before you probably could get you know over 50 percent but here in the east where we've had you know we've had hd since the 70s i think or well it's probably it might even been before that they found it in new jersey in 55 we identified it or identified it yeah in 55 in like, new jersey like described it scientifically yeah it might have always been it could there. have been there before yeah, that yeah. right but um not too much longer there because we were reintroducing deer in the, the uh, 30s and 40s so it wouldn't you, have been too you. too much before that Long, anyways, long story so short. So 50% is a big hit. Around here, yeah, 50% would be a big hit. And that's a term, naive state would be a state where you naive the, the first time a population right, A population it. that hasn't had it before, yeah. Like Ontario this that's year. That's good, worse. Because I've been to some naive states. Yeah, but not for, <laughs> not for HD. <laughs> but uh, like Ontario had their, first, they had their first HD case this year. Connecticut. They're in the news right now. They um they have HD right now, so it's there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's though. slowly moving, you know, moving. Have forward. we gone over HD before? We've never done that. Is, is it possible just to give us like a two to five minute? Yeah, break, H- HD or EHD, epizootic hemorrhagic. In this, can you include blue? How people call it blue tongue and blue tongue is well, they're two separate. They're two different things. I oh, mean, they are. Yeah, they're two different strains. Yeah, there's actually. Oh, I thought they were synonyms. Yeah, no, no, they're actually different. There's different strains of of HD hemorrhagic disease, and, and some of them are EHD, and some of them are blue tongue. Oh, and then within within those, there's different different strains. So, like here in Maryland, we're in an outbreak right now. So we'll try to get our hands on samples. We send them to Georgia to the Southeast Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. They do the testing for us, and we have uh, EHD2 and EHD6 working on our deer right now. And it's uh, a virus, right? It's a virus. It's spread by noceums, gnats, midges, whatever you want to call them, cocoilidase. Hmm. Um, and nothing you can do about it. You know, it's no threat to humans. Um, but when it gets into a deer population, I mean, it, you know, it can kill a significant number, a number of the animals. And like we were just talking about, if it's a, if it's a population that's been exposed to HD over the years, they're more resistant. So you won't see as significant of an impact. But as this disease or virus moves north and gets into, into these populations that have never been exposed, it can, it can hit them pretty hard. Um, you know, 50% and, and, and up mortality. Um, and that's why you see it in the news. Michigan, yeah, a couple yeah, years ago, it was, a, it was big news in yeah. Michigan for when it... When and where, it my, where my brother Matt lives in eastern Montana, they got swept. I yeah. can't remember. It was a number of years yeah, ago now. Yeah, but. so it's starting to, you know, it's, it's really starting to radiate out. Um, you know, here in the east, we haven't seen any detrimental long-term 
issue, you know, issues with it. I mean, the, what's the spacing on epidemics? About it seems like every five to seven years we get a big outbreak. Now we'll have deaths every year. You know, it'll spring up every year. Okay, um, but it seems like every five, six, seven years we get a pretty big out. Does it correlate with a, a big population? Well, that would be part of it, you know, because there's that certain there's that certain proportion of the population that is resistant, mm-hmm. and that proportion that's not resistant as it builds up, it gets up to a certain point, and then you'll see a, a bigger outbreak. Um, so, so that that plays into it. Um, there's also theories that weather plays into it. Um, it seems like possibly if it's a drought, if it's a mild winter, and a drought summer or a dry summer um the thought is is that you have reduced areas with water okay um and also probably increased breeding maybe areas for these for these gnats uh might congregate deer more around the water that's available so you know you might have a a worse year for for hd um there's some theories out there that maybe we're starting to see it further north based on maybe some changes in wind patterns maybe some of these maybe some of these gnats are actually physically being transported to new areas you know where they haven't been before so there's a lot we still don't know um and there's a lot of research going on um but it is it's a it's been around like i said i mean it was identified in new jersey in 55 1955 i think so it's nothing to you know really get worked up about but but it happened you know it happens every year so so. what are the symptoms and and how does it kill a deer so i want to ask like what's death look like so it is pretty vicious i mean it's very fast acting um if it's a deer that that's not resistant to it um it literally breaks down cells and breaks down blood vessels um and the deer hemorrhages to death um or or you know you know causes fluid on the lungs and basically drowns um causes a real high fever so a lot of times we'll get a you know we'll get a call hey I, there's three deer floating in my pond or you know some somebody may be fishing on a nanocoke and found they go two, toward water. two or three yeah yeah drives them to water so um but it acts real it's a you know it's a hemorrhagic disease so i mean it, it acts on them real quick um there is a certain proportion that survives that you know if, if they get it um and an easy way to tell if it's a deer that, that, that had HD and survived is, you know, if you're hunting and you kill a deer, if the hooves are all sloughing off because um, it arrests hoof growth, I guess. And then if they survive it, then when the hooves start growing again, um, it sloughs off so their, their hooves will look pretty pretty rough. Oh, no good. Yeah. So. You know, the water thing explains something that happened to me once. Years ago when the lower Yellowstone had an outbreak, I was at the taxidermist there in Miles City, and his shop was just full of bucks that he was doing euro mounts on. Giants. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell are all these bucks doing here? And he's like, man, these are all things farmers are pulling out of the river. Is that right? Yeah. And no one knew that bucks like this, like, I didn't know. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time knocking around there. Like, a whole class of bucks you just didn't know existed. You didn't know were there, yeah. Down in those willow, you know, down like the willow choke yeah. bottoms and stuff. But, yeah, yeah. He, said, he said every farmer in town is bringing them all these bucks. He's Is that right? Buckheads yeah. dragging wow. them out of the river, yeah. these giants, you know. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, we'll hear, oh, it hits bucks harder. But I don't, I think if you looked into the data, you're just, you just see that buck first <laughs> you know and i think that's what your mind perceives but i i think it's an equal opportunity virus i think yeah. it's probably you know it's probably hitting any of them 
but this this area as well gets uh this part of the river gets bad ice dams it had an ice dam so bad in the 40s that they had to take a like a full-on bomber it took an air force bomber and drop ordnance to break (laughs) up an ice dam that was going to flood mile city yeah they then levied some parts of the town off to protect it from overflow from ice dams but a couple years ago a big ice dam formed up and flooded all the lowlands and eventually the ice dam breaks up and we were down in there uh fishing catfish and wandering around looking for turkeys and whatnot in the spring and there's fish hundreds of yards away from the river is that right just yeah. like laying out in fields yeah. and out in like cottonwood groves just yeah. fish everywhere my brother says yeah they get up in there when the ice dam forms and they're That's... swimming all over hell and then that thing when it busts it drains out so fast it just leaves the fish and so there's be like catfish and carp and suckers scattered that's crazy yeah all over in the woods everywhere yeah, that's crazy yeah it looks like it was like rain and fish yeah. so death in mile city yeah um the the last thing was blue tongue do we get to why it was yeah it was well blue? just it 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 causes a blood flow issue and oxygen deprivation so a lot of times you'll the tongue will turn blue but so, only the one form causes or do they both cause blue tongue they both far as i know they both can cause yeah the blue tongue issue a lot of, you'll see sores in the mouth um that's another sign that, that it was a deer that had each is it in life or death that it gets a blue tongue um i think it's right it happens so fast i think it's right there at that you know the deer could still be alive um so but it like i said it it acts pretty quick on them um then 24 probably hours 48 hours they go from probably alive to dead <laughs> Uh, that fast yeah, do you guys so do you guys quick. even bother going in and euthanizing sick deer that just happens um, so quick it happens so quick that very uh, most of the times when we get a report it's a deer that that was that's already dead or the you know the landowner says yeah i was watching it was sick and then it, now it's dead <laughs> so you know it, really? happens, yeah, it happens it happens pretty quick they're not clinical for for a long time cwd yeah. chronic wasting disease you know i mean they can carry slow. that yeah very slow acting but hd it, it hits them pretty quick yeah so, yeah. Man, it sounds like if you, if you are going to catch one, I'll go with the HD. Yeah. Sick, <laughs> um, sick of deer, just, just a little note on that. As far as we know, sick of deer do not get HD really? or blue tongue now. Um, back when I was doing my, my graduate work, I had a bunch of deer radio collared not too far from here, and we had an HD outbreak. And uh, it killed... I forget what percentage, but it killed it killed quite a few of my radio collared whitetails, and never touched one of my sick of deer. So that I had collars. Really? On. So, yeah. Not saying it's impossible, but but just based on on what we've seen, we've never had a report of one. We've never been able to test one, and like I said, none of my radio collared animals ever ever got it. So wow, yeah. man. Yeah. So. Maybe someday my kid will be like, "What's a whitetail?" I don't think you have to worry about that. <laughs> so, I don't think I just know that. about six. Let's hope not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks so much, man, uh, for coming on. Thank you. It's exciting. I think people will be real interested in this. And the people from here will be real mad that we talked about this at such length. Yep. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. 
It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, it's Steve here. Are you serious about hunting or self-defense? Well, starting in 1996, XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied that methodology to modern defensive handguns, all made in America and trusted by industry leaders. Meat Eater listeners can get an exclusive discount on the XS Sites website. So just go to xssites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout for 25% off. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. 